0: All right, so it looks like the end is near for the BCGEU strike and it could, uh, and couldn't come any sooner for some, for most industries actually, such as the restaurants and bars and, and cannabis stores. But one group perhaps completely, uh, you know, kind of forgotten are those who rely on medicinal cannabis or marijuana for all sorts of ailments, including, you know, managing pain. Uh, while being treated for cancer or other diseases, and, and I think this is something we need to talk about because I think this, this strike really drew attention to the challenges that industry has. Dr. Brielle Kapler is co-chair of MAPS Canada and uh, joins me now. Hello, doctor. Oh, hello. Thanks, George. Thanks for this. Look, you know, uh, where are the, the strike is? You know, looks like things are easing up, but where are you guys? Where are we at right now with distribution? Because that was the issue for certainly for the cannabis industry.
1: Yeah, thankfully, that's easing up and it looks like it's going to be, um, um, the operations are going to begin again for distribution, hopefully today.
0: How bad was it for you? I know we heard a lot from the cannabis stores and they were saying that, uh, you know, if we didn't get the distribution in by the end of the month, that they would see a 30 to 40% closure rate of, of operations. But in your case, it's a whole different situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, it ties in together, you mm-hmm. know, it, it's like it's affecting everybody. So it's affecting the stores and then it's affecting the customers of the stores. And in particular, the, the people like you were mentioning who are using it for medical purposes.
0: So what was the plan if the strike had continued?
1: You know, there's, it's very problematic. Like, access for patients has been a problem um, since the beginning, you know the the mm-hmm. reason why there's a medical program is because patients went to the courts and fought for their constitutional right to access a medicine yeah. without having to risk their liberty so then here we find ourselves in a situation where there is a federal medical cannabis program mm-hmm. it 's not being highly used patients are using it definitely mm-hmm. um, more and more are using it to grow their own to produce their own or have someone produce it for them but because that medical system doesn't include storefront access a lot of patients are using the non-medical system for storefront access and a lot of them are not growing for themselves so that is mm-hmm. their source of cannabis so those stores being closed or not having product Um, and many of them have been closing, um, and we don't know how long the product will take to get in line and the product that people need. That means they're going without their medicine for an extended period of time.
0: The stories that you hear, I mean, I have a friend who has MS, and uh, he switched to medicinal marijuana some time ago, and the, the change was astounding to be honest i was he was he was amazed and you know what happened and how the the chemicals that he'd been putting in himself before were creating cancerous tumors on his you know on his stomach and then he switched to medicinal marijuana and all those things went went away and is you know it was a miracle really so uh, is that kind of almost typical of the stories you hear with regards to medicinal marijuana
1: You know, it really is. Obviously, you know, it's different for different people. Mm -hmm. Um, It does have that potential, though. I was working with the first compassion club in Canada, the BC Compassion Club Society, which actually is closing its doors today after about 25 years. Yeah, I saw that, yeah. and, um, you know, that's what I, you know, I experienced out there, like I did intake sessions for eight years with patients. Mm-hmm. And I was hearing those kinds of stories. for them. one person who had been using it went across the border, didn't, you know, to the state, so he didn't bring any with him and had horrible symptoms of MS, which he didn't even realize he had hmm. until he stopped using cannabis.
0: With the Compassion Club closing uh, and then we have the strike at the, almost the same time, uh, interesting situation because you sort of go, wait, well, maybe it's the Compassion Club, maybe the, these organizations should stay open uh, if we're going to really? face these kind of challenges in the future.
1: Very much. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's a shame. I mean, it's very sad. It's a big loss. It's a big loss. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also a Compassion Club in Victoria um, th- that's having challenges there. It's a big loss to not have these institutions and organizations that have been serving patients for, you know, quarter of a quarter of a century, for 25 years. Patients rely on that for a good source of medicine, which is focused on their needs. So the recreational stores are great. And and I mean, cannabis is cannabis. So mm-hmm. patients can get the services they want, but the way the laws are, people can't, aren't supposed to be giving medical advice in the non-medical retail shops. So having specific um, dispensaries or medical compassion clubs um, for patients, um, storefront access where they can talk to people, see the different products, get that kind of, you know, um, relation and, and information is very helpful.
0: With the legalization in Canada, because one of the challenges, as you note, is is with there's not a lot of lab work, lab studies or scientific information about the success of uh, marijuana or cannabis uh, uh, and its health benefits and side effects, really. Uh, is that changing or is Canada still too small for that to make an impact to how we study the impacts and and, positive and negative of, of marijuana? And oh,
1: cannabis? I mean... It- there, there, is a, there is a lot of research out there. And, and, and like you said, there is more and more that is mm-hmm. changing. But there is a lot of research. Um, some of it, you know, is, is you know, in, in labs with animals. So it needs to get to the phase where it's with um, human beings. Right. The problem has always been around, you know, that, 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 that type of research has typically been done by pharmaceutical companies who have yeah. a product that they're patenting. And with cannabis, it's a plant medicine. So we need a different kind of model um, for looking at that and for um, funding that and, and supporting that kind of research. Um, but there you know there there is research and there's more and more interest in it, uh, the different compounds of CBD and the THC and what works best and the terpenes, but um, you know we also have, you know, uh, many, many, many years, <laughs> uh, decades, you know, centuries, millennium of of, 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 you know, of you, you know, of recorded Personals, use for yeah. different symptoms and conditions. And then, you know, we have a lot of, um, you know, again, with these, you know, with the medical cannabis system now, there's a lot of physicians who are working with patients um, to have access and are tracking um, how that's working for them. So that's very helpful, but we do need more. And so one of the mm-hmm. kind of issues has been, and this kind of this strike brought it up, is some of the physicians were, were not supporting their patients to get access to the medical system, which, again, you wouldn't have to go through the, the provincial mm-hmm. distributors. You would get it directly from the licensed producers. Mm-hmm. So these kinds of strikes wouldn't impact that. But they felt like they did not have to support their patients to go through that system wow. because now there's the, there are you know recreational mm-hmm is available so it's easy for people to get legally um, and this might um, you know this might put more attention on that that um, we need to make sure that there is a secure source um, that's uh, always available and hopefully more affordable That's been another problem with the um, federal program is they've applied the same taxes to right. the recreational cannabis as they have on the uh, medical cannabis, so it's not affordable for
0: everybody. Yeah, there's a tax grab there for the governments to to benefit from, which you're not, certainly in BC, not benefiting as much as they thought they might. Was there any, you know, discussions with your group or any groups you know, sort of lobbying the government saying, look, we don't know how long the strike's going to go on for. We have this challenge where we have Uh, people who use this and they're very concerned is there any way for us to find a way to get around uh this system and and you know speed up or, or get special access was that ever conversations that were had with the province at that stage given where we were at
1: you know, I don't, I don't, I, you know, I know that the um, the retail association, mm-hmm. um, the BC Retail Association, they, they, that was something that in their messaging with the BC government that they, you know, they kind of took on that voice and, and a bit of that advocacy as well. I'm mm-hmm. um, just, you know, acknowledging that even though it's not a medical system, it is being used by mm-hmm. medical patients. So looking at the statistics out there, about 53% of medical patients who say that they're using cannabis for medical purposes are accessing their cannabis from the stores. So, you know, that's a considerable amount yeah. of people who are reliant on that. So that, that group was, was saying that, you know, some of the things that they were saying were, you know, that, um, I mean, they're saying it for different reasons, also economic reasons. But the way with COVID, uh, cannabis was considered an essential service. Mm-hmm. I think when you're looking at for medicine, it definitely is an essential service. So just acknowledging that this is where patients are getting their medicine right now, um, you know, it, that supply should never be um, stopped, really.
0: So, how will you make sure that doesn't happen? I mean, is there, an, a, obviously, uh, this has shown some holes in the, in the current system and that uh, the government mm-hmm. needs to be made aware of this, federally and provincially, that there needs to be, this can't happen again. You know, you, while people have the right to strike and deal with this, when it impacts, you know, people's health, uh, there, there are special, special tension that governments need to place on that.
1: Well, yeah, and even more so, I mean, you know, it is overdose awareness day. Mm -hmm. And some of the people who use cannabis are using it as a harm reduction, um, you know, tool around some of the the opiates Mm -hmm. and other drugs that are, you know, potentially um, can lead to an overdose or problematic use. So it's, it's very important. It's a very important tool that we have right now um, for harm reduction um, around overdose and, and the drug poisoning crisis. So even more so, I think that has to be recognized and, you know, one of the things that that the province is bringing in is direct sales from the producers to the retailers. So that kind of helps by by not having the central distribution Mm -hmm. that's, uh, you know, vulnerable to strikes, um, you know, which which happens from time to time and and are, you know, like part of the society Mm -hmm. we live in, and that's fine. Um, But yeah, so like, yeah, like the wine model, um, like the craft craft beer beer model. Yeah, yeah. so having direct sales. So that is Hmm. coming in and that should you know that that actually got went went on a hold also with the strike but that's back online okay. so that has to be expanded quickly mm-hmm. and and really solidified um, and i also think that we have to look at um, having storefront access for patients for you know for medical cannabis dispensaries like mm-hmm. the compassion club i mean that that's a, again a huge, huge loss, loss but 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 bringing that back in Um, And I don't know that's going to be, you know, have to be a combination of the federal and provincial governments um, to do that. But that, you know, it's not in the regulations for medical cannabis, but that is always been a a glaring error.
0: Dr. Kapler, I appreciate you joining me today to fill us in on this. It's been very helpful. Thanks for having me. George Affleck in for Jill this week. I hope you're doing well. And now Claire Newell from Travel Best Bets joins me to talk about travel. Hey, Claire.
2: Hi there, George. I have to start with the fact that um, for people who were listening on Sunday, Uh I guess a few people heard that it was actually just yesterday morning that I had to drop my son off to the airport heading back to the university, which is always tough as a parent. (laughs) I don't know. It feels harder for a mom. My husband was okay with it. I mean, I know he was still sad, but um, but the reason I want to... Yeah, I know. He holds it in. Um, but I did want to mention, because I, I had some of my friend's kids leaving on Sunday, which oh, was the no. day that there were chaotic Chaos. lineups. Yeah. And and Monday was quite tough as well. So I my son had an 8 a.m. flight and we ended up dropping him at the airport around mm-hmm. 5.30 yesterday. We had absolutely no issues. <laughs> in fact, I live quite close to the airport and by the time I was home, he has a Nexus card. But mm-hmm. he did have two bags to check in. Oh, no. He was actually, <laughs> actually, I know, I know. That always is a bit <laughs> scary, given the, the, mm-hmm. uh, the headlines of all he the, the, the bags. But he had to. You know, he's going back with all mm-hmm. of his things, and he had Finished bag check and gotten through security and was at Tim Hortons before I actually got home. So I was really pleased to hear that. So I think it was a bit of an unusual thing what Uh, happened on Sunday.
0: I know, but it's sort of – I think people usually. – we're coming back from a a nightmare couple of years. And I think people need to be patient and assume the worst when they go to the airport. I know that's what I do. I assume – I don't know what to expect, so I'm going to make sure I give myself lots of leeway and I totally get – you know, if anybody who's an employer out there, you you know this, it's people it's really hard to find people right now in any industry yeah. and I think the airline industry and the obviously the airports are, are having this challenge too and I think we just need to be respectful of each other and go, you know what? This this is happening.
2: Well, it's interesting that you say that, George, because I've had a couple of people write in to me saying that, well, I was on a cruise five years ago and it was not the same experience of course or it I was, was, was at a resort <laughs> five years ago. Right. And I think that I, my reply is always, you know, I think that the expectations need to be in check mm-hmm. given the situation around the world with respect to travel. So whether you're flying or staying in a hotel, whether you're cruising, whether mm-hmm. whatever you happen to be doing, things aren't the same. You're going to be waiting longer for check-in, you're going to be waiting longer if you're ordering food at a restaurant. That's just the way it is, and mm-hmm. you're right. We do need to be patient and be respectful of the situation because it's, it just isn't the same. Yeah.
0: Um, in the meantime, I, there's a, our airport's winning awards, so I don't, I don't
2: know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have I mean, to, uh, I, I have two shout outs um, yeah. today, one for an airline, but one for an airport. So what's really great is Victoria International Airport has been named the most efficient airport for its size in North America. But this is the fourth time that the airport has won the award. So real kudos hmm. to YYJ. Yeah. Um, and this was in the 2022 Global Airport Performance so Benchmark Report. So during this
0: nightmare that we're all living in, they're still doing well efficiently. That's impressive.
2: Yeah, it it's it's really great news for them especially given the the staff shortages mm-hmm. they previously won in 2014, 2016 and 2020. Wow. And so, you know, other airlines uh, airports in the mix were Orlando, Detroit and San Jose. So these mm-hmm. were all most efficient airports with under 5 million passengers okay. in North America. So big shout out to them. Nice. The other uh, shout out I wanted to give was to WestJet because Um, They celebrated their 15th anniversary of their WestJet Cares for Kids Mm -hmm. program during the week of August 22nd. So in the 15 years, they've donated over 100,000 flights to charitable partners. Wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, And really good longstanding partnerships with some well-known organizations mm -hmm. like Big Brothers Big Sisters of Canada um uh, hope air make a wish canada missing children's society wow. of canada ronald mcdonald house just to name a few and the the program itself it really has a positive impact on the health and well-being of young people that's their mojo for this program mm-hmm. so they do it through gifts and part of that is going to be through Um, assisting with fundraiser efforts, maybe giving, uh, say, a a fundraiser is hosting an event. They'll give a couple of seats to help raise money. They might reduce the cost of Mm -hmm. travel if some organizations need it. So a big shout out to them. I think they're really well-loved in... In Canada, especially mm, Western Canada, and some negative we've, we've, stuff
0: lately. But yeah, I think they're they're definitely yeah. seen as a fairly positive place. But uh, I think, like like you yeah. said, there's a lot of challenges in the industry. But anytime you hear about an organization doing good, you got to give them kudos.
2: I completely agree. Um, I want to. Uh, do you use Airbnb? I Have do. You ever use them?
0: Uh, yeah, yeah. And, okay. and, and Verbo, yeah, or VRBO.
2: Yeah. So mm. I don't think you're going to be one that this will uh, affect, but Airbnb is going to be using some new methods to spot and block people who try to use this short term rental service to throw a party in mm. not just uh, Canada, but also the US. They have this new anti party technology oh, no. and it actually looks at a renter's history, uh, how oh. far they live from the home they want to rent. So obviously, if it's close by, what? that's a big red flag, right? Yeah, of, and course, whether, of course. And whether. Also, if they're going to be renting for a weekday or weekend. You know if it's a Friday or a Saturday night. But there's other factors in there as well. They've been testing this since last October in parts of Australia. But it has produced, I mean, up. Produced a 35% drop in unauthorized party where it's been tested. So you know that this why, is yeah. working. So any airbnb <laughs> want to be uh, house partiers? Yeah, why, why, <laughs>
0: why trash my house when I can trash somebody else's? Sure. I know I do worry about because I'm going on a trip next year for a birthday and... You, we've rented a house, but we have friends who are going to be staying close by. And so we're not having a party, but we're we're going to have a dinner. And I also, say, oh, God, what's the what's the owner going to say if I have a couple of extra people over? Am I going to get busted for this? I mean, you're always worried about that. Well, you know, that.
2: I think they have the limit now of 16 people. And that can be whether it's for dinner or in that house at all. So it's one thing that you right. might owner of the house, let them know. You obviously, if you're upfront about saying we're having a dinner party, we're having X number of Mm -hmm. people. I think that that's a different scenario than someone trying to go under the radar and then throw in a big rager that does (laughs) damage to a property. You're not in that boat.
0: Uh, What? What have you, what? Come on. What, I'm past that, am I? <laughs> what are you saying? Claire? I
2: guess I don't, uh, uh, yeah. do I know you, you that
0: clearly, well? <laughs> you clearly don't know my friends, no. Um, look, hey, I saw, this, I saw this thing about Vale Resorts, which owns Whistler, but, and it's interesting because last time we talked, I talked about going to Machu Picchu, and there was this limitation on how many people can go up to Machu Picchu. They really put restrictions into this. You're seeing that kind of happening in a lot of places, but I see that Vale's putting restrictions on, but it's not related to anything to do with the environment. It's more about staffing.
2: It's about staffing because mm. last year they took it on the chin about their labor practices and their staffing shortages because it kept lots of sections of terrain at a lot of the resorts closed during good snow conditions. Right. They, like they actually could have been open, so they're having to increase minimum wage and um, they average hourly wages ac- they did right across the whole company by about thirty percent, and this is across all thirty-seven yeah. of their of their resorts, including Wessler Blackcomb. It's not going to impact anyone who has passes, like Epic Passes or um, Seasons Passes. But if individual lift tickets are sold out online, they're not going to make them available for walk-up customers just so that they can manage, make sure that every day is a good day for those who actually have the ticket. So Mm. I think this is a smart policy, uh, especially I think this is going to be a season that is tough for them, again, for staff. Mm -hmm. Getting people in, getting visas for a lot of people come from overseas to work at these mountains. And I think that it's yeah. been difficult for them. Some parts of, of the world that they recruit from, they're just not even open or it's way tougher hmm. to get what they need to be able to, to get here in time. So let's hope that it's a better season than it was last yeah. year. But I, I get, know for get, a lot of people get who, Australians who have been back
0: there working <laughs> or the Irish, I mean, I, you go to Whistler, it's all Australians it. and Irish. That's all you meet.
2: <laughs> it's so true yeah, yeah. it's so true um do you want to chat us some deals or do you, i know we might uh, want to go to a, yeah, a we'll commercial after
0: the break but i just want to quickly ask you just related to vaccination or just related to covid i mean i see that some things are opening up i mean carnivals uh letting some crews they're loosening up and i see that in japan's opening up yes it's really interesting You're, we're seeing yeah. an end to their light Let's, at the end of the tunnel maybe
2: we are um and i wanted to talk about the cruise lines in particular because as of september 6th Royal Mm -hmm. caribbean as of september 5th i know that other cruise lines including disney are all moving to loosen restrictions on board they're actually allowing unvaccinated guests to self-test for COVID 19 on most cruises um and that's all in a move to loosen the reins on the pandemic era Yeah. yeah it is and when i when i say that that it's self-tests. I'm talking about the ones that you just get free at yep. the pharmacy mm-hmm. and you take a picture of it. And that's all you're going to need. You don't have to have the full letter and everything. So okay. that's all starting in early September to keep that in mind. And right around that same time on September 7th, mm-hmm. Japan is ending its requirement for vaccinated travelers to have a COVID-19 test to enter. So just to clarify, this is obviously a gradual opening for Japan. They really They, were they, strict. they have a hard-hit tourist economy. Mm-hmm they were strict, but visitors have to have received at least one booster vaccine mm. so that they can waive that pre-entry test. So three mm. shots in total. Um, so just keep that in mind. If Japan's on your list or you want to visit friends and family there, it's uh, three doses required, but then you won't You have to do any COVID-19 okay. tests. So yes, yeah, things are easing up around the world. Yay. I'm still a big fan of double-checking everything. <laughs> yes. um, and you can do that on a couple of websites. Uh, one of them is the iata.org destination tracker. Mm -hmm. The other one is Sherpa. If you do a Google search for the word Sherpa travel, S-H-E-R-P-A, or PA, and then travel, it will come up with what looks like a, a booking engine where you put in your flights, whether you're vaccinated or not, and where you're going, if you've got a connecting flight, and it will give you all the information that you need, both going to a destination and coming back and give you kind of the red flags, the warnings if you need to wear masks into restaurants, if you, you know, anything that might affect your travel plans while you're away.
0: George Affleck in for Jill today, and we're taking your calls. Claire Newell, Travel Best Best is our guest, and Meredith from Vancouver. You got a question for Claire?
3: Hey, Claire. Um, my friend and I. Hi, Meredith. To- Hi, my friend and I are hoping to go to Spain and Portugal, and we transit in the USA for about four and a half hours there and back. And I'm wondering if you are, might be know what sort of COVID requirements we need for that. Mm-hmm. I've
0: Thanks, Meredith. Well, yeah, it's a good question.
2: Heading over to the EU, yeah, it is. It's a it's a really uh, good question. Um, if if you are fully vaccinated, there's really nothing that you're going to need other than coming home to use a can. Going into the U.S., you'll be uh, fine, and then Arrive heading can. over to most of the EU countries. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> I don't see that going away anytime uh, soon, but it's a very easy trip for you, Meredith, uh, especially under the the previous circumstances. Things are much, much easier than they were even just six months ago.
0: Fantastic. There you go, Meredith. I hope that helps. All right, Garth from Ladner. Go ahead for, for Claire.
4: Hi. Uh, me and my gal, we go to Kauai for a pre-pandemic for about 25 years, and we've noticed that the prices for the hotels... <laughs> are crazy. Yeah. And we're really familiar with the properties. Hmm. And I tell you, if I not didn't know and I went there and yeah. I was charged X amount of dollars, I'd be choked. Uh, yeah. What's are
0: going they ever going to yeah. go down? It's a great question, Garth. What is going on? That is true. I've noticed that as well over there.
2: So have I. I <laughs> have noticed it. Um, all of the Hawaiian islands since... Um, Basically, once the restrictions started to lift, you have so much demand for all four of the Mm -hmm. the major Hawaiian islands. And I was actually on a flight not that long ago, and I overheard a conversation between, obviously, a sales rep for one of the Hawaiian island hotel chains and someone else, and they were saying that they can virtually charge what they want. There is that mm, much demand. And mm. until the demand starts to drop... This is unfortunately like the new norm. So I, I've noticed this, uh, and people who have, like you, gone year after year are just yeah. so disappointed with yeah. the cost at the moment. And they don't
0: have Airbnb much there either. They were quite strict about that stuff over there in no, Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: it's really unfortunate. But especially parts of like Wailea yeah. uh, on in in um, on the island of Maui, mm-hmm. it is just astronomical. Yeah. Some of the the really. Kind of bougie, fancy hotel chains are charging two, three times what they normally charge. They'll find every somewhere, pandemic. Else, find somewhere else I to go. I guess. Unfortunately, yeah. that's what a lot of people who are absolute Hawaii year-over-year lovers yeah. are are doing. They're going somewhere where they're finding a better deal.
0: All right, we'll take? I one wish more. I
2: had better news on that. Uh, yeah,
0: I know it's well. It could change. It could change. Curtis from Burnaby, real quick. What's your question?
4: I uh, don't have a question. Just uh, further to uh, Claire's comment. Uh, I've traveled four times in and out of the States in the, and uh, over to Europe in the last two and a half months. Never once have I been asked for my Arrive Canada app <laughs> application
5: form uh, or anything. Curtis I don't even
4: think the, board, the border guys aren't even bothering with it.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Curtis. I don't want to get into that conversation, but it definitely is something that's confusing. Let's get one more call in there because I want to get your uh, your deals in here before the end. So, Troy, real quick, what's your question for uh, Claire? Yeah.
4: Hey, George. Hey, Claire. Claire, quick question for you. You're talking about Japan. If you are fully vaccinated, including a booster, do you have to quarantine going forward? Oh,
0: okay. Thanks, Joy. Yeah,
2: that is a good question. And no, you do not. Okay. Uh, up until just around that September 7th 8th it's been such a nightmare heading back and forth. And there's been very it's been very mm. limited. They only opened up really slowly with some tour groups and things. But now it will be open if you are fully cool. vaccinated. There
0: you go, Troy. OK, Claire, give me the deals. Where do I need to go right now? I, got, I, got, I need a
3: vacation. Oh, give me some tips.
2: Well, I love this one. It's a seven night Mexican Riviera cruise that's leaving November the twenty-sixth. So it's nice time for because the weather's often not great here. It's a seven night cruise sailing round trip from San Diego aboard the Koenigs Dam, which is a mm-hmm. Holland America ship. It's been in Vancouver doing Alaska. And so a lot of people love it because it's a beautiful ship. With a fifty dollar onboard credit, three hundred and eighty-nine mm. Canadian taxes of one ninety seven nights. for the week. Nice. Yeah, the next one I've got is Veradero, Cuba. And you can do this between October tenth and December thirteenth. It's airfare and seven nights in a four star beachfront mm. all inclusive resort, nine eighty five, taxes, four eighty. Nice. do I have time for the last yeah, one? Go for it. Okay. Calella, Spain, so for those I love this area if you don't know where it is, it's about thirty five minutes drive north of Barcelona, yep. and it's April the nineteenth so the weather will start to get a little bit mm-hmm. warmer late spring, air and twenty nights so almost three weeks in Calella <laughs> with your airport transfers nineteen seventy nine plus seven eighty Attack. So oh, that, that is nice. April the 19th that for including crazy. air in almost three weeks. Amazing. Yeah, it's all a good
0: one. Right. All right. Thanks, Claire. That's what I've got for you. That's awesome. Thanks for Thanks joining us. Thanks so much, George. Me. Have okay. a great day. Thanks. That's Travel Best Bets, Claire Newell. Welcome back. Welcome back. George Affleck in for Jill this week. And uh, we've got a, we're in our second hour already. And after the news uh, at one uh, we we'll hear about a new study that says, you know what? Three drinks a week is all you should have. Three drinks a week. All right, all right, maybe we'll talk about that. And in our last hour, we're going to talk about paramedics and ambulances. You know, we've heard some horrible stories of what's going on in the interior with ambulances not showing up. We even have stories here locally. Uh, you know, we've this seems to have been going on for some time, and we're going to talk uh, about that in our last hour. We'll also go to the PE for our daily hit. Uh, today, we're going to talk about food. Of course, we love food at the PE and the chef's kitchen they have there, uh, as well as uh, we'll have uh, Jazz come by and Combine tell us about his big show this afternoon and your buzz line. So- Call our buzz line anytime throughout the show. 604-331-2899 is the number on anything that we're talking about. 604-331-2899. We love to hear from you, and we play a selection of those at the end of the show. All right, so today is International Overdose Awareness Day, and this morning drug users from across the province held a press conference to address the 10,000... Ten thousand lives lost to illicit drugs since April two thousand and sixteen, and since the declaration of public, you know, we declared it then a public health emergency here in BC. Dolph uh, Compassion Club distributing clean community source drugs was one of the organizations at the press conference this morning.
6: The driving cause of these deaths is the deregulated and unpredictable illicit drug market. What we have is a problem of regulation. What we have is a failure of the regime of prohibition. And that failure does not make it a criminal issue or a medical issue. That failure makes it a political issue.
0: Lots of questions there. Community contributor Eric Chapman talked to Tracy Letts, and she's from Mum Stop the Harm, about what the policies you know, that have been implemented, implemented to stop the deaths. and what, 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 Why is it taking so long, uh, and is there still hope uh, after so much loss?
3: You know, at the beginning when this was declared a a crisis, especially in BC in in April of 2016, there were some moves made federally. One was, you know, the Bill C-37, which allowed for safe consumption sites across Canada. They really loosened the restrictions and the barriers. They put policies in place that we could get these up hopefully quite soon. But, you know, we're running those barriers in every single community outside of, say, you know, urban centers like here in Langley. We have funding. We have funding and money to put an OPS in and we can't find a space because the municipal governments are just not allowing it. Um, Abbotsford's run into the same thing. Chilliwack So the South Valley is just crazy um, with their politics. But that was a good policy. So they've made it easier bringing in the goods and heritage law. They made it easier for people to report incidents. But that's kind of backfired in some ways. They're not no, it was being good all the way around. The B, you know, with the BC CDC, you know, providing the some kits to absolutely anybody who wanted one. I think that's been a life saving measure. But other than that, I mean, look, we've had two. We we put in our own Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions. The Feds last year put in their Ministry of Mental Mental Health and Addictions. I don't feel they've been effective because they really aren't at that grassroots level. They're not listening to people who've lived and lived experiences. Even though they're, you know, it's committee after committee. But it's what they're hearing is not being put into policy. And I think that's a huge failing on their part. Is we have this thing in our heads that we know better and we know what people want and we know how to give people what they want, but we don't ask them what they actually want or need. And I think that's huge on our end. It's a failure all the way around. You
6: talked about uh, the problems getting an OPS. Is that a lot of the stigma still? Do you think, Tracy, that it's attached to that?
3: I, I completely believe it's stigma. And I, I think, you know, as individuals, we grew, we have inherent stigma and we've been brought up in a certain way. And it's really hard to start looking at things from a different lens until it really happens to you or affects you. So I do believe that stigma plays. Honestly, I actually think it's the number one, arguably the number one reason behind the lack of political change. And I think because if your community doesn't want to have, you know, doesn't first off believe that there's actually drug users in your community or two, they don't like to see the unhoused or homeless people or three, that that resentment and stigma does build up. And if a politician comes out and supports more radical actions, yeah. um, especially when it's towards life-saving measures that people don't agree with then they're worried about getting voted back in again so yeah i think stigma plays the biggest part in our communities but it's, it's been a long process we've been doing this for years and we don't feel like we're getting anywhere ahead so in in policy wise you know some of the policy, the thresholds like the federal government mentions you know 2.5 gram threshold well that's another case of not listening to people Because that threshold doesn't make a difference. It had to be higher because it it actually creates a different set of harms now. It actually criminalizes people in a way that they may not have been criminalized under de facto decriminalization before. It also may put people more in stream or in line with what they consider trafficking. So that opens more doors to criminalization.
6: What would you like to see happen in, in the immediate then?
3: Like to see the Compassion Club model, if that's the only way we have to go right now, at least it's going to save lives. So maybe just kind of open the doors to that a little bit. I do know, you know, groups like dolph they're bringing, they are, they're having to secure their drugs from the black market because there is no other choice. And in reality, every single illicit drug that we're seeing on the street now, our bathtub mixes that are made here, we're importing so little. And so that's why we have got away from cocaine and heroin and we've gone to methamphetamines and, you know, analogs of fentanyl with, you know, some benzos and tranks thrown in. I mean, a lot of people you talk to, they're using fentanyl now because they don't have a choice. So I think if they could relax some of the, the regulations, get the exemptions in place and actually put a framework in that people could get what they needed. In in the dosage that they need Because even on the fentanyl patch programs, there's some people that have four and five and six fentanyl patches on their bodies at one time. Because that's how strong the street drugs are. And that's how much they need as a pharmaceutical equivalent.
6: Are you hopeful that we can turn this around?
3: Do you know what I am hopeful? I have a son that lives in the downtown east side. Um, I worry and stress every single day about what he's doing what's am I going to get that phone call that knock on the door um yeah I'm hopeful because I have to have hope and I'm also hopeful in that I think people are becoming more educated they're becoming more recognizing that this is an issue that we all have to put our minds to and and work towards a common solution I think that there's a lot yeah but hope I do have hope and I do believe that We can get there. I just don't know when we're going to get there because it feels so glacial that how we're moving now. But I think we just have to get all the building blocks in place and, you know, and kind of do it all at once. Because a lot of drug users work. They have jobs. They can't, you know, be showing up at a pharmacy four times a day. What employer is going to allow that? Not that the employer wants them using drugs on their, you know, on their job site either. But it comes down to we have to find a balance, and we have to actually start being more of a caring community to, to work t- towards that. So I do have hope, a hundred percent.
0: That's Eric Chapman talking to Tracy Letts from the Mom Stop the Harmon Eric's uh, with me now. Eric, you know, one, she, at the end, that she talked about uh, the people working, and this is one of the things that people forget is a lot of people dying. Uh, are in the basement suites, or the, you know, their husbands, they're their, their, their people who mm-hmm. perhaps work in the construction industry. It's not just people on the downtown east side. This 10,000 lives across Canada in seven years, whereas she says, yeah, it's a failure all around, uh, that nothing really has changed in seven years from a policy point of view yeah. that's effective. Uh, but it's people dying everywhere. And that's why I, I don't understand why government doesn't jump on this and move faster on it.
6: Yeah, yeah, George, you know... Uh- if there's, a there, uh, uh, Garth Mullins, who runs the Crackdown podcast, he told me that there's, a, a the studies say that there's around 100,000 drug users in all of BC that are reported. So that's not even the people that are coming forward because, again, mm-hmm. the stigma attacks to this. So if there's 100,000, let's do some quick math. If there's 100,000 drug users in BC and they're all using on the downtown east side, well, the deaths <sighs> alone would have eliminated the entire population, mm-hmm. doubled by now. So that's something we just have to start wrapping our heads around that. I know this is difficult to hear, but these are our neighbors. There are construction workers. And yes, they are lawyers. Mm-hmm. Yes, they are doctors. Mm-hmm. They're all these people. They are people that have recovered or are in recovery or are using drugs right now. And as soon as we grasp that, and I know it's difficult because we're not supposed to use drugs and these are the people we look up to, but you gotta understand, there's a lot, there's so much wrapped up mm-hmm. in this. We have to wrap our heads around things that, don't sound very like realistic
0: or or common cuz they are and we
6: yeah. have to we have to know that yeah
0: George Affleck in for Jill today. All right, hope you're doing well. We've got a great, uh, another hour and a half left of this show, and then it's on to Jazz's show, which, of course, you'll want to stay tuned to as well. All right, a proposed overhaul of Canada's decade-old drinking guidelines warns of increased health risks from a few as few as three drinks per week and calls for mandatory labeling on all alcoholic beverages. The recommendations come from the Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction to discuss this. We're joined by Tim Namy, director of UVic's Canadian Institute for Substance use research, and was he was part of the expert panel that developed the new guidelines? Hey Tim, how's it going?
5: Hey George, thanks so much for having me. How are You're you doing? Welcome. Today? Good.
0: So look, three. Come on, three drinks a week. This, my doctor said two a day, and, uh, <laughs> and you him, know, why three per week? This is torture. You need a new doctor.
5: <laughs> well, listen. George, we're we're obviously not out to win any uh, popularity <laughs> contests, but um, seriously, uh, what we want is for Canadians to have the best mm-hmm. uh, sci- scientific information to make to make health decisions. Uh, in this version of the guidelines, we're just sort of what we're doing is publishing risks associated with various levels of consumption. So, you know, mm. for people that are, uh, and we don't, so we know that a lot of people will will find that. Uh, You know, lower levels not possible or not desirable. That's Mm -hmm. fine, but the bottom line from this report is that at virtually all levels of consumption, if you drink less, it'll be better for your health, and that's the bottom line. So alcohol is not, uh, you know, is generally unhealthy, and drinking less is is better than drinking more, pretty much no matter where you are on the spectrum.
0: I think so often though people get confused because you'll see one study says this, another study says that. You know, red wine, drink a glass of you know Pinot Noir, and your heart's stronger. Uh, But you're saying no matter what. It's a carcinogen. Don't stick it in your body.
5: Well, basically, what we're saying is that you know, if you have j- just in terms of sticking to the sticking to the facts mm-hmm. that you know that um, you know, based on the the latest research, and I think uh, the the you know Health Canada and CCSA did a great job with the best studies, five thousand studies reviewed, the best quality that the you know you're... Up to two drinks a week, your risk is about the same. But above that, the risk does start to go up a bit. Um, so, so there's a moderate increase in risk at three to six drinks, and then it goes up quite steeply after that. And we're so,
0: yeah, and we're talking like uh, cancer. Uh, yeah. Also, so,
5: so basically, and the other way to think about this, George, is that we that alcohol can affect fifty different diseases. Uh, I think m- most people, I hope, are aware that you know that alcohol. You know heavy consumption of alcohol is is um, is bad for all forms of disease. Mm-hmm. I think it's just the idea that where the risk you know the, in the last ten or fifteen years the science has evolved quite a bit in terms of showing where the risk starts to go up and it's up to you know people's own judgment to uh, to know what to decide what they want to do about that but one of the things that is you know we are much more aware of now and which we have much better studies is looking at alcohol 's role in the development of at least seven types of cancers, mm-hmm. including some biggies like breast cancer, uh, and colorectal cancer, which are leading causes of cancer death in Canada.
0: The, and it's not just your, in your body that your study looks at, it's also the impact of, uh, you know, um, disease and, and, and alcohol in our society, as far as what it does to mental health. And, and do you also look at costs of, of the process of, you know, if you people do get sick and all those things?
5: Well, not in this report. So okay. this report is really focused on the level of alcohol consumption and the risk of death mm-hmm. for all like 50 different conditions that are known to be related to alcohol consumption. Then we kind of stick those together and come up with the estimates of overall death. But in the, in the report, of course, we do cover off on some of the other dimensions, like you mentioned, social problems like violence, child neglect, these are things obviously that mm-hmm. people have who drink more heavily, or who you know, binge, drink, drink to the point of intoxication. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, in terms of costs, you know alcohol is far and away the leading drug in terms of generating health costs and lost productivity. Uh, a lot of the deaths uh, um, for alcohol occur among working age adults mm-hmm. and a lot of the problems. So yeah, there's added dimensions besides the, the health dimensions, for sure.
0: But there's a certain irony and certainly here in British Columbia where we just uh, got Mm. through a strike uh, with the BCGEU. They manage the (laughs) distribution of alcohol. The province makes billions of dollars off this. There's a a conflict of interest and if they want to take this study seriously for the government –
5: well, that's an interesting – that's really great because, you know, in general, in, in public health, and I'm a physician, and you know, we tend to think mm-hmm. of, of monopolies or government control of alcohol sales as a good thing compared to the privates. And, and that may be true, but you're absolutely right. The government does – you know, is in a conflicted um, mm-hmm. position on this point because, as you mentioned, they make a lot of tax revenue. Interestingly, because of all the costs of the alcohol they sell at the current tax rates, Canadian taxpayers are actually losing money. Selling alcohol, but putting that aside, <laughs> because of healthcare um, costs, or, well, or and all the other that?
0: things that come along with it, or is it why? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah,
5: primarily because right. of of healthcare costs. Yeah, yeah. Sure. okay. Um, but anyways, you're absolutely right. There is a conflict, and one of the things that I think is nice about this uh, report is that, listen, we we want Canadian uh, consumers, Canadian citizens, to be informed about alcohol, but all of us are busy. All of us have lots to do the The idea that an individual person can control everything about their life is, of course, n- not true, right? Mm-hmm. So so like all of us, you know, the the government or the society plays a massive role mm-hmm. in kind of nudging us to make a little bit better decisions. And we're not saying, you know, don't drink alcohol or don't sell alcohol. But again, if everyone drank a bit less, you know, people would be better off health-wise. So what we're calling on in this report also is for the government to take a more active you know role in the area of policy to help make you know the decisions that their you know that their own commission has found and one thing that we talk about in particular George is the need for Mandatory informational labeling of alcohol yeah. products.
0: I am you know? I am always like looking at I'm going, why is there no information? <laughs> I buy a, you know, I'll buy like craft dinner for my kids and I get all the yeah. <laughs> information I need about the garbage and that, uh, you know, a fence, but you know, it's not a lot of cheese in there. Um, right. So why can't I see what's in my, you know, gin and tonic mix or whatever? Exactly. Why, exactly. why so, is this? Why is this not even, why is well, this? Well, exactly. So so I
5: so, Like I have a. I when I give a talk, I give a picture of a pan, you know, a a can of uh, of peas. Yeah. And on the back of a can of peas will be this massive thing. It'll tell me how many calories, mm-hmm. what is the standard how many mm-hmm. serving sizes are in the can of peas, how many milligrams of magnesium are there? And meanwhile, we have alcohol products with absolutely no health warnings, no information about how many calories there are, no information about how many drinks there are per container. If I go, if yeah. I go buy a bottle of whiskey, how many drinks is that? Mm-hmm. Well, if, if the if the government is purporting to want people to know how much they drink and to consume less, but the, there's not even information on the bottle on as simple as the thing is, how big is a drink? Yeah. In this bottle, and how many how many drinks are in the that's bottle? Because right.
0: if the health regulations say, oh, you know, even though you may not agree with them, or let's say it's right. two drinks a day, then that if that's the regulation, then if I buy a bottle of wine, it says it should say there's four, four right. and a half bottles, four and a half glasses in this right. bottle, you know, or something. right? right? So
5: I think what we're trying to do, George, because, you know, we we know like we're trying to move away from this model of telling people what to do. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if we want to have people be informed consumers, they have a right to know stuff. And right Mm -hmm. now, you know, alcohol, I mean, as much as, you know, I might enjoy alcohol or you might enjoy alcohol, you know, it is a calorie dense, carcinogenic, potentially addictive substance. And you wouldn't know any of that by looking at a label Mm -hmm. of a container on alcohol and yet for a whole bunch of like healthy you know innocuous products you know lots and lots of stuff so that's just obviously a carve out for industry and there's lots of reasons behind it but yes. but i think it needs to change and in that way i think we can all agree that again we know that not everyone is going to be interested or want to to uh Follow all health recommendations or information, but at least people have the right to know.
0: But they didn't ha- support the, back in the day um, cigarettes uh, being being informed on them either. And, and as you know, having grown up in the when world, everybody was smoking until nobody's smoking, you know, the 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 packaging was directly related in my mind to to what happened yeah. to that. Uh, Lot, you know, that this education process includes, mm-hmm. included the packaging and showing you what this stuff's going to kill you literally right. would say that on the packaging. Are you saying that maybe we should go that far?
5: Well, I think, listen, um, I think there's some basic elements that should be on the label and, and this ties into the guidelines. Mm-hmm. Number one is standard drink, a standard drink in Canada is in the U S where I'm from. It's about a, you know, a can of beer or a five mm-hmm. ounce glass of wine or a shot of spirits. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be clear information saying how many standard drinks there are in every each and every container of alcohol sold, and what the volume is, mm-hmm. just like on the can of peas it'll be like mm-hmm. a serving is four ounces, and there's you know this, there's four four servings for a container, so there needs to be standard drink labeling number one number two, there need to be some some health information like mm-hmm. alcohol causes cancer like alcohol, I think, you know, again, I think that's a big one, you know, birth, it could be rotating messages, birth defects, you know, violence, et cetera. Um, and then the, and then the other thing is, is some basic calorie information. And again, alcohol is quite calorie dense. Yes. Like how many, how many calories are there in this bottle and how many calories hmm. per standard drink? I mean, we have another epidemic going on of, you know, of obesity, obesity and yeah. a lot of obesity related diseases. So yeah. again, why, why is it that alcohol is is exempted from from required calorie information, whereas nothing you know other ingested products aren't. So,
0: uh, hey, why not just the vitamin C that I might get of a bottle of wine too? You know, you could tell me that. What's that? <laughs> the vitamin C I might get out of a bottle right. of wine. You know, yeah, might but, as well know yeah. that too. Uh, I mean, it's funny because some products,
5: some alcohol products that are marketing more towards health, if they, if they do make any kind of health claim, like they have to put everything on there. So, mm-hmm. so you can find some some products that are labeled, but it's that's the exception, not the rule.
0: Does the report go into uh, other uh, like legalization of you know, drugs, uh, uh, marijuana, uh, cannabis, that kind of stuff at all?
5: No, okay. no. So sorry, just, it's just boring. It's just alcohol. <laughs>
0: that's okay. <'cause, laughs> no, because it's something that I think is important. All right. So th- this is you're you're seeking public input into this. So how do people uh, give you their thoughts? See, well, well, that's we'll great. Seeking, I think uh, you
5: can. You can. Gosh. I. Gosh. I, yeah. I'm the wrong person to ask. All right. Uh, but I think you can go to the. Canadian Center on Substance... Yeah, their what, website. ...CSA website, and yeah. there's a... And also, I believe, through Health Canada, you can you can input comment.
0: Until the end um, of the month, I think, right?
5: I think so, yeah. And what happens um, to all that
0: information then? What, you get these comments, maybe it's positive, maybe it's negative, then you put it into the yeah, final report? So,
5: well, I'm one of the expert panelists. We don't have much to do... Well, Like, I think mm-hmm. if there's any kind of a scientific criticism or if, okay. say, hey, you forgot to include this study or whatever, then we will get... Uh, drawn back into that process Mm -hmm. um but i'm i'm actually that might be above my pay grade
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right well i appreciate you joining me today (laughs)
5: yeah george thanks a lot and again we we're we're we're, you know um you know we we're just uh happy that you covered it and i think it's good for people to know they don't have to get down to any particular level but in general like less is less is better and at least when it comes to health
0: Welcome back, everyone. George Affleck in for Jill. Hope you're doing well. All right. So several reports this week of communities with understaffed ambulance and paramedic stations. They're, they're arguing that uh, those staff shortages might have led to some tragic deaths. Now, hearing that, you'd think there'd, you'd see immediate uh, action from the province. But then we thought that two years ago, back then there was uh, it was reported that many part-time paramedics, especially those in smaller towns and communities, could not be enticed to work there because the pay was so terrible. Has that changed at all? Has it, What has been done to entice these first responders to move, live and work in these small towns around B.C.? To discuss this and other things, we're joined by Troy Clifford. He is the ambulance. He's with the ambulance paramedics of British Columbia, uh, and uh, the union that represents over 4,500 ambulance paramedics and emergency dispatchers in the province. Hey, Troy, how's it going? It's going good, George. Thanks for having me on. No worries. Look, this has been one of those weeks. I know you know that, and I'm, you know, but I, I remember hearing, and I don't want to get into that because I think we're we're hearing the results of that. But I remember hearing, uh, you know, a couple of years ago that many small town paramedics were paid on this sort of kilo. Pay scale, and I'm, you know, first of all, what is that, and has that changed? I just want to know more about this part-time thing because this is where I think these small towns are really challenged.
4: Yeah, so you know, when you say a couple of years ago, this has been a long, long-standing issue mm-hmm. that precarious work in primarily rural and remote BC. Um, and what it, what that kilo is? It, that's a kilo with a call sign that we have, so mm-hmm. just for the your your listeners, and it assi- it's a, it's it's me- it's assigned to an on-call ambulance, a part-time ambulance that is paid a $2-hour uh, a stipend while they're waiting for calls. Um, and when, they're, when they receive a call in their community, when they're on that call-out ambulance, they're paid their paramedic rate um, for the duration of that call for a minimum of four hours. So uh, in a lot of rural and remote communities, what that means is that uh, somebody has to be available in their community, ready to respond to emergency or an inter-hospital transfer. And if they don't get one of those, which a lot of those communities are not the highest call volumes, then they don't get uh, other than the $2, Two an hour shift they can get $24.
0: I mean that's almost um, that's a, it's almost an insult $2. I mean you might, you're, you're basically working for free. Where does the $2 come from? Why why $2? I mean it seems ridiculous.
4: So it's a long standing issue that came from essentially community volunteerism. We actually got nothing for to $2. Um, and what's happened is uh over the years that, you know, it was sort of a little stipend just to acknowledge somebody's uh, time. And then it went to you were guaranteed a minimum of a four hour uh, call out during the, those, those shifts. So you got paid whether you got a call or not. And that was really productive for uh, ensuring that uh, people at least got some compensation for their time put in. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was taken away and negotiated into a, a new service delivery model a couple of years ago, a scheduled on-call that has proven not to be effective. So we still have that on-call $2 an hour model. And what's happened in the last couple of years is it's really prevented. It's one of the reasons we've been in with our recruitment and retention issues. That's We're no not kidding. able to recruit in those small towns because people just are not prepared to do that. They have options. Of course. Um, and they're not... They're not coming into the service because of that precarious model.
0: I mean, we look at towns like Barrier, which is in the news this week, you know, and they were at 60% capacity, I believe was the number. Um, you know, to get that 40% in the town saying, the mayor saying, we're trying to get people up here, it's looking good. But, you know, it's not a huge enticement. It's basically you got to go there, have another job, and then that's just something you do on the side. Uh, but you have to have skills to be a paramedic. Yeah. So, yeah, so
4: what that, you know, using Barrier, Clearwater, uh, Belmont, you know, Gabriola, all these communities mm-hmm. that, that scheduled on call is not, I mean, that model of on call has not been, it's not uh, met its objectives. Uh, the world's changed in the last couple of years as we've been talking about. But really, what uh, a lot of those, those communities we're talking about, including Barrier, have a 24 hour full time ambulance. That was put in place by this government um to cover off the community what's happened is we're not able to backfill those secondary ambulances and a lot of those full-time positions ashcroft another example that you know we've had some tragedies there mm-hmm. um where the positions are not filled so it's going out of service or they're being drawn and we're seeing this overnight we've seen some real challenges in Nimo where those communities around are being drawn into that full, that, that urban uh, larger center because of their staffing shortages right. and that's leading these vacancies in these communities and putting a uh, those communities at risk for response so it's kind of a two-fold issue mm-hmm. um, you know and we're relying on uh, other agencies like the fire or first responder volunteer agencies that are not trained or within their scope to do the work that people need paramedics that are qualified trained like you said mm-hmm. to treat, transport time people in their time emergency yeah. and that's why what put these full-time positions in these communities um, and that needs to be really recognized because that is That is what's working, and that will provide an ambulance to treat and transport them in time of need. First responders are a vital role or part of the whole system, but their their role is to provide critical interventions in a time of emergency to support the ambulance service, not replace them. Um, You know, I know there's been some discussion and frustrations that maybe they should treat and transport, but replacing with another agency to do the work of paramedics, if not in the best interest of patients mm-hmm. or those agencies, they have roles. You know, the fire department is uh, public safety and fire prevention, and they support us in first responder roles. But they're not trained to the scope, sure. nor, are they, nor do they want to do that work.
0: Well, and, uh, I'd like to put out fires. Thanks very much. Yeah, for the yeah. firefighter. I know when I was a kid, the firefighters, I had my physics teacher in grade nine, uh, we'd love it, actually, because there would be a fire call. He was a volunteer firefighter, and I guess the, most of the fire – I don't know if it was the entire fire department back. This is the early 70s. Um, and, yep. you know, he'd get a call. His beeper or something would go off, and he'd disappear and be like, all right, fire somewhere. But, you know, it was it was a volunteer situation for a firefighter. But it, this is like 50 years ago. I mean, we think we'd make progress and look at our how we fund our healthcare system, the population growth. You think the government would sit there, how much is this going to cost us to do? So that question to you, what would it cost to be able to, to staff and pay a full time, to, to get to that level where every town's like barrier and in Gabriola and wherever else can have somebody, you know, enough staff in place? How many millions, billions are we talking about here?
4: Well, I'll answer that, but I just want to acknowledge, you know, you talk about the volume. You asked where the Kilo model came from. Mm-hmm. It came from the 70s when we first became a provincial service in 1974, when we, we just didn't have the full-time resources, and they mm-hmm. put a provincial ambulance service in. And it, that was the biggest step we did, but we haven't progressed in the last 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. in, in, in moving to that full-time model, which, um, you know, that's where that $2 came from. It was volunteers in, in communities that really essentially kept the ambulance service going. That model is no longer sustainable, and it was not sustainable ten, fifteen years ago. But it's still in place, and that's what got us into this crisis. But you know, with respect to what's it going to take, you know, if you look at the overall healthcare budget and the, um, you know, the amount of money that put into this current government put into the ambulance and stuff here, that's a, it's incredible what they did. But really, what it's highlighted is how far behind we really got. Mm-hmm. So you know do do i have a number we're working through those numbers and we're actually talking about those through bargaining and discussions with the ambulance service but you know in the big scheme of things you know you know the scheduled on call model cost about 15 million dollars in last round of bargaining to put in place and that was not successful Hmm. um so we're we're talking in uh in you know in in those numbers to improve the service to more full-time it's uh for a 24 hour ambulance and this used to be the number and i think it's pretty accurate it might Mm -hmm. be a little more to put a full-time 24-hour ambulance in a community mm-hmm. uh, with eight, or, sorry, nine full-time paramedics, primary response, they say it's about a million dollars. Per per Wages, benefits, per ambulance, equipment, overhead, all those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, when we're talking 63 communities still don't have full-time ambulances across the province, uh, you know, there's $63 million to put a full-time ambulance in so, every so, remaining It's
0: per community. year, a million dollars uh, per year. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, so 63 communities, $63 million per year. The problem is
4: put h- a full time ambulance service, ensure every town that has an ambulance has a full time ambulance. Mm-hmm. Now, there's some really remote communities that there may need to be a, a different model. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some that, you're, you know, does less than 100 calls a year. And then you'd have to really, but, you know, we don't say that that community doesn't deserve a doctor
0: mm-hmm. or a primary health care. Right. Yeah.
4: So, you know, I think that's where we, and when you look at the overall budget of healthcare and that, um, I think that that's, I know it's a lot of money, but it's also really not a lot of money when you think about um, the the responsibility. We are, in a lot of those communities, the rural and road that we're talking about, we are the only healthcare and community. Uh, yeah. And we know that you've been talking on this show and everybody's been talking, our, our partners in health with doctors,
0: mm-hmm.
4: you know, we're a million people in this province don't have a general physician. Yeah. Um, and what that does is put pressure on it, particularly in those smaller communities that have no, um, there's more work for us because then we're transporting patients farther because the hospital closing and people aren't getting the care. So then they're relying on the emergency Of course, of course. For more addictions and mental health. Yep. We know that those people, sh- you know, in their time of crisis, unless they're having a crisis, the best place for them is not in the back of an ambulance or an emergency department um, unless they need immediate interventions. So they need the proper support in it, so not having physicians, so it's a very complicated angle, but I mean, I say. Yeah, there's a lot of pressures on this government.
0: I wouldn't want to be in nurse. <laughs> no. Do you think, uh, the, you know, do you think tough, but- yeah, no, but I mean, 63, let's just, you know, when you use the doctors as an example, okay, so those guys have to go to school for seven years, 10, you know, whatever. It takes forever to become a doctor. For whatever reason, because they get paid pretty well, they don't want to be in barriers. So is it, do you think it's easier for you to get nine uh, staff uh, staffed up for an ambulance station in, in any small town, B.C., uh, any one of those 63 towns, than it would be to find a doctor, to find nine, and if you, especially if you're paying, you know, if you're if it's you know fifty thousand bucks a year, if you're living in a small town, you can do quite well with that. Um, is it from an employment point of view? Do you think you you can staff up if that were to happen?
4: Oh yeah, if we offered meaningful wages, full time positions, that I want to make clear, I'm not suggesting that paramedics can fill the role of a physician. No, no, no,
0: no, 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 no. But I'm just saying so, the challenge that the, the doctor challenge is much more. It's complex. The, the education, yeah, it blah blah blah, all of these offers. things. you yeah. know.
4: Yeah, yeah It takes a lot longer to train them. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. If we could recruit um, and have, offer those opportunities for full time. We know it works because it worked. in When the government added last summer, uh, the minister added mm-hmm. uh, 26 communities went full time um, in response to the heat dome and, and yeah. their, their commitment to that. And we know those ambulances that are staffing, the Hazeltons of the world, the, the northern and remote communities that were, went to a full time primary ambulance. Now there's problems because we haven't filled all the vacancies, or BCH hasn't, and there's uh, you know our recruitment. What, what that decimated is those part-time on-call casual employees that were backfilling the secondary ambulances and that. So that's put a lot of pressure mm-hmm. on that. But what we can do is when we talk about the doctors and those challenges in those communities, we can support. Mm-hmm. And I, I said this this morning to a colleague, I said there's challenges in all of healthcare and and human resources in every mm-hmm. profession and industry in this province. But our problem is we're not competitive with our wages and benefits. Mm-hmm. So then what we end up doing is people are choosing other careers going to private industry. Mm-hmm. But if we can address that gap, people will come into this profession. There's lots of people that want to do this great job. Yeah. Um, so I think I know that if we did that and address those gaps, we would. And, and a lot of people don't want to leave their community. They want to do paramedic sure. work and, in barrier and not have to go to Vancouver or Mm -hmm. leave their family or their home that they've grown up in. And unless we utilize those people in those communities, we're going to have continually challenges to recruit. And those are the people we want, dedicated to their
0: community. Well, if you have a, it's like a yeah. You say it was almost a recruitment process. You get them in the small towns, and then if they move on, but you still have a, you can get them in there and get them trained. And if they want to come to Vancouver, where we need ambulance and paramedics as well, um, you've got a great, uh, you know, team of people to pick from. Or who, who you know, there's going to be attrition and, and movement, and and yeah. but if, at least and there's places the, to pick them from.
4: Like you know, you can train and, and recruit. So there's a lot of good initiatives mm-hmm. going on. And I, it's tough for me sitting here and <laughs> always talking about the we're, we're, the negative and the, the. But this is a good profession. The paramedics are, and dispatchers are working their buns off to keep it mm-hmm. uh, as best they can. And um, I'm optimistic if we can get through these really current stuff and get some short-term influx of uh, immediate actions, and uh, we can get through this long term. But uh, maybe that's me looking at things for rose cloud glasses. Stay positive.
0: Know. Stay positive, Troy. Don't don't don't, don't go the negative road. Stay positive and get what you want. That's what we I think it's the I think the people of the province are behind you.
4: Yeah, I know they are. And we get a lot of good feedback. And I think generally, you know, we know that the public and, and the media and everybody is supportive of us. Um, it's tough for our paramedics and dispatchers when they see when they can't do the job that they've been trained mm-hmm. to or when they respond to a call and somebody's been waiting in their time of need. That emotional and psychological stress yeah. is incredible pressure on them, you know. And when they hear of something in their community like Ashcroft and others that we mm-hmm. mentioned, is devastating for them. And mm-hmm. you know, and and you know, that's why we're seeing these more psychological injuries. They're yeah. not the actual ambulance calls; they're the system or in the operational stressors that are putting the pressure on our members. And it's I talk to them
0: every day, and they're it's in tough. Yeah, I bet. I bet in in this past couple of years, especially. Uh, Troy, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it.
4: Sorry uh, for taking so
0: long. No, no, uh, all good, all good, all fascinating stuff. I appreciate it.